The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and and Apple Podcasts. Associate Professor of RMIT University is the official title. Okay, Honorary Associate Professor Anitra Nelson. I'm glad that I upscaled you by accident though. And Anitra is here to talk particularly about a new book that she's had come out. You've edited this book and also made contributions to the book. That's correct. Yeah, I'm the lead editor and I've contributed to four chapters. And it is Housing for Degrowth, Principles, Models, Challenges and Opportunities. I'm going to start by asking the obvious question. What is degrowth? How is it different from post-growth or growth? Okay, so degrowth is minimising the energy and materials throughputs in society, as distinct from growth, which tends to exacerbate and increase the energy and materials throughput. So we have a lot of talk about decoupling, but so far decoupling hasn't been shown to be a success. Decoupling is? Decoupling is trying to grow in a monetary and capitalist sense at the same time as reducing the amount of energy and materials that you use in the production of products and services. And you're talking much more fundamental change. Change. Yes. And is this a theory or it's a practical application? In the book, there is theory and to the, the extent that we do lots of recommendations at a policy level. That's, those are the more abstract aspects of the book, but every chapter is based on evidence and on case studies. So it moves very much from the practical. And in fact, it's written primarily by uh, activist scholars, people who've been involved in degrowth experiments. So for example, my co-editor, Francois Schneider, has established a degrowth centre in Seber. Uh, it's called Candacreche, and it's right in the south of France, in a coastal area. And he's occupied an older building and has groups there and tries to show them how you can live as simply as possible within that kind of a structure. So the word occupied kind of went to that point, but I was going to ask, is this um, a system that's quite separate from land ownership and and tenure? Well, most degrowth people would be working towards either more equal distribution of private property or no property. For example, I think that we all should be just stewards of the earth and basically have use rights to buildings while we're alive. And I think everyone should have their basic needs met like that. And the experiments often take the place of squatting, take in the form of squatting, or they purchase land and then... Well, we have a chapter on 
squatting by Claudio Cataneo, who lives in a squat that's on the peri-urban edge of Barcelona, and that's called Can Mesdeo. It's quite a famous squat. It was It's a it's squat older. of an old leprosy uh, huh. hospital. It was in disuse, and so they, they occupied it, and they have a big social centre there, and they have community gardens, so it's very open to all of the neighbourhoods. And he talks about people, people who squat divide into political squatters who see it as a way to make a statement about being homeless and about there being empty buildings. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who squat because they need to, and of course there's some crossover, so people who satisfy both kind of categories in that sense. He argues in our book that a lot of the political squatters are really achieving degrowth in a lot of ways and advancing those principles, whether they're conscious of it or not, whether they are like him, sort of paid up member of degrowth Mm -hmm. or not. And the Australian example, do you have any to to point towards? The the people who've contributed from Australia um, are Ted Trainer and Wendy Christie, as well as myself. And there's another woman, um, Tash, who's done the chapter that's on Christiania, where she spent quite a lot of time and studied there. And she's originally Australian as well. So Ted Trainer talks about his pig face point centre of sustainability and of simple living. And Wendy Christie, interestingly, toys, she's an architect in, based in Canberra, talks about Vanuatu hmm. and how there's no uh, degrowth movement in Vanuatu, but people who need Vanuatu, people are just naturally, their society is basically degrowth. Because they never had a growth paradigm. Or... That's right. And so they're now actually being challenged, in a sense, by, by that. She uses the Cyclone Pam incident as a way to demonstrate that the Ni Vanuatu traditional materials and ways of building, which was to build communally and to build very simply so that when cyclones came, they're constructed in such a way that the winds blow around the buildings and sometimes through them. So she argues that there was less damage to those kinds of buildings than where you have concrete and flying corrugated iron and those kinds of things. So I suppose that that's not saying that if you're arguing for degrowth, you want to go, in a sense, backwards and back to Mm -hmm. the caves. It's saying that we need to move forwards and use the best of the technologies that we've developed, being very mindful that our big challenge today is minimising energy and materials. Yes, it more or less was born in France and is very strong. There's a very strong German contingent in various places. It's mm-hmm. more and and less 
a strong movement. I'm interested in, in that context because I'm thinking when I was in Germany last year, it wasn't degrowth, it was, I think, post-growth, but that the planning challenges and the policy challenges were quite different to Australia. In Australia, we really mainly talk about either creating growth or managing it. I guess the reactive frameworks that most policy people, particularly in housing or planning, work around. And in Germany, they just had, particularly in the former East Germany, a different set of challenges where we're t- they were talking about areas where the population was significantly declining or the cities were significantly shrinking. And it wasn't in the same way as degrowth really a fundamental challenge to the politics of it, but it was a different, just a different set of skills, a different set of assumptions. And it meant that I, I noticed that some of the things that you might learn in Australia didn't really apply there. That you, And that is, is a new thing, but they're, they're facing that future not in a way that they're purposefully returning to the past. They just have new challenges. I mean, do you think that will ever happen in Australia? And if so, are we equipped to deal with it? It's, ve- it's very hard to say. Mm. So uh, Samuel Alexander and Brendan Gleeson have a Palgrave pivot that's coming out next month mm. that's called um, Degrowth in Suburbia. But that's a kind of quite, you know, top-down envisaging mm-hmm. uh, kind of scenario which is different from the way that we've approached our book here, which has been really working with grassroots groups mm-hmm. and their experiences. I actually think that things have shifted because the, I'm in my mid-60s and the generations below me have not got... Uh, you know, it was difficult for us to actually gain a foothold into the housing market, but it's more or less impossible. So people are thinking right in, in very different ways mm. about housing. And I think that they're coming to very similar conclusions and expressing very similar values to the ones that we do in the book. So in the book, we're arguing that people that planning and building regulations should enable and allow Mm self-building that is building very very simply. As long as they're safe and secure housing, we think that they they can be as small as people want them to be, in Mm -hmm. a sense. And uh, we also think that what we're arguing for is our enabling mechanisms so that more people can fill buildings than some maximums allow Mm -hmm. at the moment. And we've got very much a family style of policy around housing. And this is something that I more look at in Small as Necessary, which was also published earlier this year, which I wrote. Although the family household is a minority, politicians and, and policy people are still saying families this, families that. Mm -hmm. And it's at the bottom, we've got lots of single people, lots of couples who are older Mm -hmm. and younger ones who don't expect to have children. And they're all wanting different forms of housing and they want different they, what they want are better tenancy laws so that people can rent more easily and for longer periods of time, those sorts of changes. Mm. There has been a, a fairly long tradition for various reasons where when we talk about housing, we do talk about families and we talk about even the, the traditions of planning and zoning, put, particularly in American context, they talk about the single family home and single family zoning and Many of you alluded to the minimum size restrictions we have sometimes for dwellings and also 
occupancy rules and things like that, their intention or the kind of fear that they speak to is this idea that you'll have families crowded into these uh, small dwellings. And that is what, I guess, the logic of how these regulations are designed. But from your perspective, you're interested in the top-down summit. How do you enable people to build or create the kind of housing that actually meets their needs? But the way we react to policy changes is think, well, how would a developer exploit this? So we tend to go the, quote, safe route, which is to say, no, we'll have to maintain our standards really high. But, this but it's not safety for human beings. Mm. So we've got over 100,000 people who are homeless, and that figure has actually grown between the last two censuses. So that's not working. Mm. And, and I think it does need to be recognised that some people are quite happy with minimal standards. But yes, we need minimal standards. No one's arguing that, that you can just leave any old house. But you are questioning some of the... Well, size was one you mentioned. So there's a chapter about tiny homes in yes. there as well. Yeah. And that's quite a critical one. It's very interesting because it's written by a North American mm-hmm. and she built a tiny house herself and she lived in it and then she got pushed around a bit because there are lots of planning laws around Mm -hmm. where you can stay and now she's a landlord of her tiny house and she wrote her MA thesis on tiny houses. And her observation is that she became quite uncomfortable after a while because she noticed that she'd build her tiny house with shingles and it was all like in a very pritzy kind of (laughs) traditional style yes and had all of those colonial Mm -hmm. aspects to it so that lots of people talk about tiny houses you know you have your little piece of the world which is homesteading in a sense exactly and also moving through um indigenous areas in a very colonial way and like I have a right to my tiny house and to be on wheels and to be moving through and Mm -hmm. all of that kind of thing so it's good because a lot of the chapters are very multi-dimensional they they might look at an area you know even the squatting area it's looked at in a multi-dimensional way and some of the perverse outcomes of of various aspects of squatting and Mm -hmm. allowing people to occupy that kind of thing. And there's a a role for, I guess, there's grassroots, this is really about bottom-up and enablement and so on, but then there's all these different dilemmas about what local government means and what, how do small areas govern themselves and are you, is the objective to change a broader system or is it just making a space for, for yourself or your own rights or a local area's rights? The degrowth movement is about social change in general. Now, we, in a paper that we gave at the EU Parliament, which was on post-growth, and I didn't answer your question about the different distinction between post-growth and degrowth, so now's an opportunity. Degrowth is, in a sense, a kind of post-growth. So there are people who are in the post-growth movement who are like green sustainability people, and that means that they're more into seeing technological ways that you could advance beyond capitalism but the degrowth people are more into fundamental um, diminishing the throughput of energy and materials and are more judgmental about technology not 
saying that technology is bad, but that we all should be actually examining technological advances to make sure that they are actually creating efficiencies. Um, back to the question. Is grassroots about creating a local space for experiments or difference, or is it the broader objective to change the yeah. biosystem? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The way that we look at it is that the, the planet is in dire straits with carbon emissions out of control and that's only just one or the tip of the iceberg of so many environmental crises. That our feeling is that we need as much action at the grassroots as possible because then you can get as quick change as possible. From that point of view, we don't ascribe to people who, say, argue uh, for system change before any mm. other kind of concrete mechanisms are brought into place, just sort of like you have to smash the system. Mm-hmm. Um, our idea is, well, the only way that we can actually get people on board and happy to change is if they feel confident that they're not going to be uh, losing their safety and security and those things that they really care about. So that we see all these kinds of experiments as really important demonstration sites and they're trial sites. So as we do those kinds of experiments, with collective living or with seeing how you can uh, minimise the energy that you use and use renewables in different ways, we're actually having pilot projects which demonstrate what works well in what areas and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of outcomes that you don't really expect or think about until you actually do something. So our argument is that you get change by doing it. And so that's not closing down on the big system change. So like the book itself demonstrates that in that each of the uh, authors looks at their case study uh, or their area of interest and they describe how it is degrowth and how it's not quite degrowth. Mm -hmm. And they also then consider what the policy challenges have been in that particular case. And, you know, Mm -hmm. with those people who were doing self-building, they found it really difficult to actually engage with planners and they had to actually tailor and sort of minimise some of the best aspects of what they wanted to establish in terms of a house because they just wouldn't have gotten through the planning laws mm-hmm. otherwise. And so at the end, they kind of like then have examples of, well, policy needs to change in these sorts of ways. So the, the actual kind of focus on the practical and the focus on an individual or a family or a, a, a collectivity of households has actually then enables you to make more useful recommendations, I think, on a general social change. you're on the front page of the Midland, what's it called? Midland Midland Express. (laughs) 
And it sounds like you actually drew out quite a big public response from that. Yes. Did you get a sense of what it is, beyond people that are already involved in this movement or academically involved, what is it about this different way of approaching housing that maybe strikes a chord with, with people? What draws them in? Is it something attracting them? Or the, is it because the housing is so financially so difficult now that people look for alternatives more? I think, especially in Australia over the last five years, house prices have just skyrocketed. And people find it's quite obscene. It's not just that it's unaffordable, it's kind of crazy. And people who have been able to live in the centre of uh, small townships in central Victoria now find that they're being pushed to the fringes of those towns or even, you know, into more isolated positions just to have affordable rent and then they're using their cars more and then every, everything is more difficult for them and they're very aware that public transport is a really big deal as well. So people are not even just focused on housing, they're looking at it as a whole of life problem and they're saying that they would like to live more in co-living so that they would have their own small apartments as part of a bigger block or as, as, as part of a residential um, settlement um, where people shared more, like laundries. Mm-hmm. And so it's primarily, I think, economic. And then there's a significant number of people who are involved in the environmental movement who are really keen on alternative living as well because it fits in with all of their values of respecting the environment and rehabilitating all the areas that are becoming more damaged. A lot of Australia's forests have been damaged just by urban uh, spread as much as by logging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a principle threading through the book about prioritising reuse and rehabilitation as well, right? That's exactly right, yeah. So reduce, reuse, yeah. And also, when we're building a new, and this is in um, a settler society like Australia or Canada or United States, in areas where you might have um, some amount of uh, new house building, being very keen to think through how you might actually be able to build something that is readily reused as it um, goes out of use, even if that's 50 or 100 years' time. Mm -hmm. And thinking about how you design new housing for people so that it can be adapted and is accessible for everyone right from the beginning. All of those kinds of things are ways that you could actually be moving in a degrowth direction even by building new. Mm And how you mentioned the settler thing, it is interesting when I think about that, just how how confronting it is for people to think about the house they're building as actually something that will eventually uh, decay or be disassembled and reused because there's so much of the way we sell or imagine housing. It's like you're building your dream home and somehow, against all evidence to the contrary, you think it's going to be there for like hundreds of years and a testament to your colonial fortitude and things like that. It's quite humbling and different to think about your houses being materials and 
and even within slight digression but even within the um you know the the culture of green building and things like that there is uh, often an emphasis on new like designing new and with new technology and things like that and that does come with that problem problematic aspect of like you know you're creating some problems elsewhere or perpetuating and not thinking in, in a systemic way about what you're really doing yeah so, we've got an interesting chapter by a woman Chitrath um, Vishwanath um, on Bengaluru which used to be called Bangalore oh yeah Bangalore Oh, and India, right? a very, you know, like I'm uh, my geographic <laughs> That's India. right, south of <laughs> India, um, and it has over the last fifty years expanded astronomically, mm-hmm. and it's flattened hills around it mm-hmm. because they've quarried out the hills to build oh, yeah. in, in a, a lot in concrete, mm-hmm. and she's an architect who is with a firm that is trying to turn that around and again this is new building Mm -hmm. but new building in a sustainable way as possible and she shows examples they've got a model whereby they build down in the urban plot that they have Mm -hmm. and they take all of that material out and they, they actually have enough material there for two houses. In one hole. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they do use some other kinds of bricks, but they make a, a, more of a clay mud brick out of, out of that material. The um, room that they have below in the basement has all the benefits of being um, a more even temperature than those above. They have... A whole, they have sort of a, uh, a building atop which is a couple of stories high and has all kinds of sustainable water harvesting features and renewable energy, those kinds of things. Uh, but they're able to, by taking out the material for two houses, then they're able to use that in another area where someone might be building on straight rock, for instance. Mm-hmm. And what the, the examples that they've experimented with and the model that they've developed also shows how one's working in tandem not just with better design, thinking more about using natural materials and energy, but they have quite different workers. So whereas the construction industry in Bengalura is like construction industry in many places, very exploitative, piecework, people coming in seasonally, all of that kind of thing, and maybe coming in from the country just to work temporarily. Their approach, because it's alternative materials and everything, it requires more of an artisan's approach, and they make sure that, that they have good conditions for their workers. And also the use of some material from one plot on another plot means you've actually got people who might have looked at those things as private property are actually prepared to go into this system where you just give to the other person who needs that earth and clay. So you're looking at social change. Mm. You're looking at different workers' rights and you're looking at different ways that people are actually they're still within a private property model, but they're actually a little bit more free and easy 
uh, about the way that they're approaching that. So again, so showing social change and another way to approach the fact that you might be building a new, which as you say, in Europe is less the case. I think that another aspect of the book that is worth mentioning is that we've taken a narrative approach and so my first chap chapter is actually housing for growth hmm. and what we are we're surrounded by narratives for growth some of which you've mentioned you know that you build a house and it's solid and this is your asset hmm. and this is your main form of saving all of those kinds of things and we show how getting a mortgage, which is the typical way that people buy a house, then actually locks them into a system for growth because they cannot afford um, to be undermining the mm -hmm. current system in any way, shape or form because they need to have their job and they need to be paying back for their house. Otherwise, they're going to be homeless. Mm -hmm. And in debt. Um, yes, exactly. So then what we... Our argument then is, is that we need to be developing out of the case studies that we have demonstrating that you can have different narratives and narratives for degrowth. Mm. And the kinds of narratives that we're looking at for degrowth are looking at housing justice. Mm -hmm. And that's meaning that everyone has a right to have their housing needs met at a mod in a modest way. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at housing sufficiency. We're even looking at maximum sizes for houses. Mm. What would that be set at, roughly? I well, know that that's not the point, it, but... <laughs> I know. It's hard to know. Maybe 50 square mm. metres per person, mm. which is actually quite a lot. Yeah. But if you were to make that a maximum at the moment in countries like Canada, um, the United States and Australia and New Zealand, you mm. would be looking at making a really big difference. And I think, um, which wasn't your point, but the size of houses, which most, I assume most of our listeners know, has risen substantially in, in the countries you mentioned over the last few decades. It's, I think the average in, in Melbourne is like, for a new home, is 250, something like that. Yeah. But this is, has gone hand in hand with a, a, a vastly reduced size, average size of a household. So when you, if you expect it on, express it on per person, our norms and expectations about how much housing space that each person has is, is radically different. Of course, I think that sometimes comes hand in hand with, uh, is part of not feeling that you have a right to any other space. So you have your own private property, which is your 100 square metres each, or who knows how, how much space you have, at the same time that the sense that people have a right to public space or a right to exist in public often is diminished. So that's perhaps, exactly yeah, right. I, I, I think that's exactly right. So you're yeah, you're joining those narratives that and the kind of pressures on people's approach to their own property. Mm. Yes. That's I, I think those are really valid points. And that's what I go into more in Small is Necessary. Mm. Uh, because it's right, during the twentieth century we went from and this was 
like around the what we now call global north countries, households tended to be about 4.5 at the beginning of the 20th century. And by the end of the 20th century, they were 2.5 or under, so between 2 and 2.5. And, you know, in a lot of places, that, that's actually keeps on going down. Mm. So, yes, rather than a, you know, family household of five people, we're now looking at a typical household maybe being two people. So it, that's vastly different. And even just suggesting the idea of a maximum, because you're in no position to impose it, but it does make you think about how much housing space people have or use. They're probably quite different things. Or I often get the impression that people with big houses don't necessarily use the house, but I haven't necessarily tested that. It's just a theory I have that you, again, part of that process of buying into home ownership and buying into that system of accumulation is that you go in sometimes get upsold on a larger house because of the fear that if you don't have a larger house or no one will buy your house off you later and then you will have lost money again and we also have this the duality is it duality the the pathway to home ownership and mortgage based etc is all based around the fear of what will happen to you if you don't do this you could be homeless or in Australia often the, the equivalent fear is just being a renter so that if you only have those alternatives either you do this and you buy into this growth system or you'll be on the other side of that growth system and well why why wouldn't you choose one but part of this project or these demonstration projects is planting the seed I guess that there is another option that's not it's not one or the other it's something else you can do. I think that numbers of people have been hit so strongly, especially in Australia, by energy rises and by fuel rises and the costs of having a car, that the whole way of looking at size now is actually being challenged and people are actually seeing advantages in a smaller home because they can see that their energy bills are just going to be cut. It doesn't matter. They don't have to change their service provider. They don't have to change the kind of energy they're living off that they know that that will be reduced. So I think that slowly, those are the kinds of things that are really changing as well. So rights does come into a lot of the way that degrowth approaches approaches the challenges that we face today. At the same time, there's a degree of cynicism mm. over the fact that rights is very much has been developed in very much in a liberal kind of framework mm. and very individualistic. And so, in that sense, we wouldn't be likely to come out with. Um, a manifesto that had a whole lot of rights mm-hmm. in, yeah, in a naive kind of way like that because we think that would be misconceived. So in the chapter um, that Elizabeth Olson and a couple of other people who've been very involved in the Italian, Italian housing struggles and as squatters, occupants they're called, occupantes, mm-hmm. What they've observed in 
their chapter is that for a long time there are struggles in Italian cities around the right to housing because we do have a United Nations right to housing mm. and many constitutions do have a right to housing listed in them and many of the struggles therefore used that language to get the demand through in a sense uh, that demand has been written in the constitution therefore it needs to be respected by this particular government etc what's actually happened what they've observed over the last um, 10 to 20 years in the 21st century as a lot of people with a higher environmental consciousness have entered the housing struggle area is that for instance there's there are campaigns for zero concrete people in cities now are becoming really uncomfortable people are dying when there are heat waves there are all kinds of ways in which quote unquote ordinary people people mm -hmm. in the street are experiencing climate change and or the intensification of of um, conditions in compact cities which make them much more expensive and and also inclement not nice places to live mm. and so the right to metabolism is a reference to the right to talk about the materials and the energy that cities actually in mean that you need if if you live in some urban areas you you more or less have to consume those things mm. indirectly because you're renting houses that are already kind of built badly or built mm. out of lots of materials i mean that always strikes me in barcelona mm. barcelona has a lot of benefits and is a really great and exciting city to be in but boy there's so much concrete there mm. Quite a hot city, I noticed. Yes. There's not a lot of green space. For, I mean, that might be changing with the super blocks and that sort of thing, but that's not easily necessarily reconciled with, with climate concerns and, and things like that. So. Yeah, so it's just, it's really interesting that grassroots movements now are actually, you know, they're joining the kind of social justice that was always the kind of basis mm -hmm. of housing struggles with an environmental justice aspect to them. Yeah, I was going to ask that in general, how you came to this topic and to what extent does bring together things from past decades or ideas? Is this a new, how do you see this uh, research area from the point of view of your, your research developing over time? Yeah, look, I had to read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring when I was a teenager at school and I was an environmentalist more or less from then. Mm -hmm. and. So degrowth is a movement that became known mainly through environmental campaigning and environmental movements. But I had already done a lot of analyses on the social system. So I did my PhD on Karl Marx's concept of money. So for me, the debate around degrowth, I suppose, had a very natural parallel with a lot of Marxist studies and criticisms of the way that capitalism works. So that's how I came to it. And the first time I was 
uh, involved with a lot of degrowth people was in Montreal in 2012. There was a, a conference there. It wasn't one of the international degrowth conferences, which are every two years. Um, it was a degrowth conference of the Americas. And it was a very exciting conference. It was very interesting. And David Suzuki was talking there, lots of people from kind of different backgrounds. Mm. And so that's how I moved in that direction. I also was involved with the University of Autonomous Barcelona, environmental justice people. And they're because, yeah, European, they're very into degrowth as well. So and you said that you, way. You, you launched this book at the degrowth conference this year, is that right? Yes. You spoke to EU, EU? Yes, yes. So the uh, 6th International Degrowth Conference was in Malmo in Sweden. It's in the south of Sweden, probably only about 90 minutes by public transport from Copenhagen. And the degrowth conference ran for about four and a half days. So we had a book launch and we had three of our contributors as well as Francois and I talking. We also had a woman who was part of the Mietzhauser Syndicat, which is a German umbrella tenant association that like community land trusts mm -hmm. tries to take housing out of the market yeah. and they've got hundreds of mm -hmm. um, houses that are in their particular umbrella organization and one of our chapters on was on that and the, the EU you spoke to the EU you know? yes so there was a post-growth and degrowth conference at the EU in the last week of well the second last week of September and on the Monday, there was a, a big seminar, a preparatory day at the Brussels Free University. And then that was followed by two full days in at the EU Parliament with um, concurrent sessions. And on the Thursday, we had a kind of, it was called a debrief but it was really a, um, an engagement with trade unions on degrowth in, in Brussels. And so that was, that was really fascinating. And yes, we gave a paper on housing for degrowth where we just basically summarised what we, what we have here. We also gave a paper on establishing horizontalism within uh, degrowth. So uh, horizontalism is uh, a different way of working from parties and trade unions oh, yeah. and governments which are hierarchical. Mm -hmm. So it's more networking and uh, working in peer-to-peer -peer ways. And what sort of questions came up in the trade union discussion? The trade unions, uh, there was one trade unionist who just basically said, I don't know what degrowth is, uh, but we believe in growth and just the next 30 minutes talking about growth. Fabulous. The EU Parliament engagement went from a very low-key, open, engaging environment to people who were basically saying, well, we're letting you in here. You're not allowed to shout. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do the other thing. Yes. Yeah. So it was, it was it was fascinating. To be honest, it was really fascinating. And they'd structured each of the panels, and there were hundreds of people 
um, in each of the sessions, they'd structured the panels. So they were usually kind of like two degrowth people mm -hmm. and about three EU people and maybe sort of an independent person. So it was, it was quite weird. It was very formal. It was fantastic to go into the EU parliament, have to go through all their security and see what it's like inside and meet some of the people. They say, like, we, we pushed them really hard on sort of, well, why have you had this? Why have you been prepared to listen to us? And they said, we seriously do feel like we've exhausted mainstream possibilities. Mm. And so we felt like we had some amazing admissions in that sense. Mm. And there were also quite a number of people, and it was difficult to judge whether our interpretation of their statements meant what they did, but, you know, who said, uh, I'm not speaking, I'm not representing what I'm saying because here I'm the representative of this mm -hmm. and I represent the EU Parliament and this is our policy and our position. And some people would say to them, and does that mean that you agree with us mm -hmm. as a real person? And they would just clamp down. <laughs> so it was really interesting because they didn't actually say, no, um, no, as a, as a human being, I'm the same, mm -hmm. you know, I'm with the EU Parliament. So it is, there's, there are a lot of tensions around discussing these kinds of things because arguing for degrowth can have massive economic impacts and there are numbers of people like Tim Jackson who say that you know like in there are Daly's kind of steady state economy there's there are lots of economists who are arguing well it doesn't sort of have to mean collapse it's not austerity we're not talking about recession mm -hmm. uh, at the same time we don't have clear examples like our book is about clear examples but we don't have clear economies in it, clear models in terms of the economic side of it yeah. so yeah. yeah so kind of wind up by asking you what's next on this okay so I'm glad you asked a colleague of ours at RMIT Europe Fern Edwards and I are planning to do a food for degrowth. Food. Oh, yeah. Food for degrowth. And Francois Schneider, my co-editor, is looking to do transport for degrowth. Mm -hmm. He did a 15-month tour around Europe with a donkey. On a donkey or with a donkey? With a donkey. Huh. Yeah, he thinks that everyone just assumes that he was on the donkey That's but actually he never sat that. on the donkey <laughs> but the donkey did actually was his mode of kind of transporting mm. his gear so he's best known for that and it's with Francois that I'll be doing a train tour because I said Francois not a donkey please let's move into the 19th century mm -hmm. how about trains and this is very topical in France at the moment where the unions have been out on strike for months on the closure of night trains, long distance night trains in Europe. So part of our tour is to um, expose the plight of trains in Europe. And we're going to take as many night trains as we can between various cities, but we've organized 15 to 20 events all through um, October, November. 
it's actually mainly November. We set off around the 25th of October. And I'll be going back to Munich, the Rachel Carson Centre for Environment and Society, the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, and also at the Technical University in Munich, Mm -hmm. to give talks as well about our book. I have a weird question that you might not have an answer to, so I'll just put it out there in case you do know. I recently read a novel from the 19th century called Notes from Nowhere. Have you ever read that, William Morris? Yes. Yes. Is, do you see any kind of parallels here? Or? Yes. So there's, an in, there's a whole tradition of simple living and utopian thinking, and some of that I do cover in Small is Necessary, Shared Living on a Shared Planet, that imagines... Cities that are quite different and people with minimal living spaces. Some, there's some imaginary utopias mm-hmm. where people are living on stilts. The, all the dwellings are on stilts and so everyone's able to walk on the ground underneath. <laughs> you know, all kinds of crazy and interesting kinds of utopias. And yeah, William Morris was very much part of a movement that had parallels with our movement in the sense that it encouraged quality over quantity. So in the degrowth movement, we talk a lot about conviviality, which is another word for like mutual support, celebration, just enjoying one another, rather than being consuming and individualistic and having to bridge all of those differences Yes, and that's kind of what I got out of Notes from Nowhere in a sense. First of all, it was utopian, it was an imaginary, but he really emphasised not what you would lose, but what, what are you losing now? What are you missing out on now in terms of your quality, quality of lifestyle, quality of housing by being subscribed to a particular model? So I'm glad you have read that, and I wasn't crazy in making that connection. Okay, so I'll wind up now. You've been listening to This Must Be The Place. And thank you very much to Anitra for joining us. Is there any, do you want to encourage people to buy a book or is that too growthy to? If people want to buy a housing for degrowth paperback, they need to contact us, the editors. We've had a special print run done. And so they'd need to email me at anitra.nelson at rmit.edu.au And I also have paperbacks of Small is Necessary available, but Small is Necessary is open access as well. So you can just go Small is Necessary, Anitra Nelson, and you can download an e-book. Thank you very much. Until next time.